everyone. Okay, not a guy. I forgot the word good. Good evening, everyone. There we go. Some of you are surprised to see me here. Because last week I got prayed out, and now I'm back. Ta! <laughs> Joking. No, I'm not. Uh, if you listen to the announcement, Ross said I'm no longer on staff, but I'm still going to be preaching. So that's why I'm here. So it's uh, good to see you. Uh, but we are beginning a brand new series, uh, and I'm really excited about it because it's an amazing subject. It's called I Am Disciple. Uh, disciple, the word disciple or disciples is mentioned 272 times in the New Testament. It's quite a few, and uh, it's a bit of a big deal, okay? So we want to really give an understanding of this. Um, but here's the, the, the thinking behind the, the phrase, I am disciple, is so often we define ourselves in different ways. You know, so at the moment, I'll say I am a son, firstly, of God. Uh, I am a husband. I am a father. I am a preacher. I am... Uh, a corporate trainer, consultant, so that's a new thing that I'm doing. Uh, but those are all things. I am a spear fisherman. It's very important to me. Competes with work quite a bit. Um, but there's, you know, we all define ourselves in different ways. But what we're saying here is, uh, is not I am a disciple, like I'm all these things, and one of the things I am is also a disciple. It's actually I am disciple. In other words, my entirety of who I am is disciple, and then I approach my fathering and I approach my husbanding and I approach my work and I approach my spear fishing even because I pray for God to help me shoot fish and he does. So I don't know what your theology on that is, but anyway. So I approach all those things through the lens of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So my primary identity is I am disciple. Because what we tend to do sometimes is kind of like that pie chart thing where you know, there's my work and my friends and Jesus, he gets one of the pieces of the pie, but actually Jesus wants the whole pie and he wants you to look through every aspect of your life through the lens of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in that space and in that area of your life. And so that's really what today is about. But now, just at an instinctual level, for a gut feel, if, if I say the word to you about, hey, we, we wanna help you in your discipleship, help you be a disciple, what's your initial feeling or your gut feel? Maybe it's like a really positive thing. You're like, oh, I want to be a disciple. That's awesome. But maybe you find it a little bit daunting or maybe you think it's unattainable or maybe you think there's a little bit more nefarious connotations. That's a fun word, eh? Just rolls off the tongue, nefarious. It means like wicked or scheming. And sometimes people have this reaction because it feels like someone's trying to control me or has an agenda for me or make me into something kind of like a cult but here's the thing about discipleship. In a certain sense, all of us are disciples of someone and something. So, for example, you get born into a family. Generally, you're, you're raised by a, a parent or two parents or a nuclear family or an extended family. But as a kid, you are being discipled by your parents. They're training you to become something new. And disciple comes from the word discipline. So they're disciplining you to be something. And so they're shaping you. And hopefully there's a whole bunch of positives. But also you get to a certain stage in your life when you kind of leave your parents' home. And then you start making choices for yourself about what you want your value to be. And certainly when you get married, you have this conversation again. Because you'll have this conversation with your spouse. In our family, we did it like this. And your spouse will look at you and go, What? We didn't. This thing is a tripping hazard, man. Um, we didn't. And so you've got to figure out how do we create a new culture that we both buy into. Even uh, 
groups of people uh, can disciple us or culture can disciple us. So think of high school. You know, there was the jocks and they were discipled into certain things. Hey, Butch. And uh, there were the gamers. Any gamers here? There we go. Like, because we used to make jokes at high school and then you guys became software engineers and made all the money. So that's awesome for you. Surfers, they had their own vibe, you know, uh, laid back. Any surfers here? See, they're too cool to put their hands up. You see that? And then you got like the alternative people, right? And like the alternative people are like, I'm not like any of these people. I've got my own vibe. And then you look around, there's a whole bunch of other people around them who look exactly like them, listen to the same music, watch the same movies. And you're like, well, alternative to who really? And then think about a corporate culture. You go into a workspace, those things can disciple or shape us. Psychologists speak about how the perceived most powerful person in the room sets the tone for the culture. In other words, their value system is looked at as the value system. So the way they deal with conflict, the, the kind of values they have, how they treat customers, how they treat suppliers, all those sorts of things shape the attitudes in that space and so people tend to, even at a smaller level, laugh at the sort of things they laugh at. The same sort of humor. And they gather around, they dress the same way. If you go into a corporate environment, it's the only place you get where, where the guys pull up their pants and they've got those colorful weird socks. But they all have it in the corporate world. Why? Because this is how we do it around here. Okay, it's weird. Sorry. I think with legs that skinny, my pants will slide back down. So in a certain sense, we're all being discipled all the time by the culture and the people we're around and the people we look up to. But here's the thing. We're told, I suppose, along the way that, that uh, we need to resist peer pressure or when we leave home, we need to have a sense of autonomy and create our own world or we can't compromise our work environment. So in that sense, all that kind of shaping, external shaping feels like it's manipulative. But here's the thing. What happens if those spaces had really, really positive things about them? What happens if the family you come, came from has great values and they teach you about uh, freedom but also responsibility? If you want freedom, you have to be responsible. They teach you about connection and intimacy. Well, what happens if those jocks, you know, they learn about teamwork? Think about the, the culture so often in rugby teams where the, the, the kind of the motto of no one's bigger than the team, and I've been watching a lot of Sia Khaleesi speeches lately because he's been getting a lot of awards and every single time he gets an award he honors the other people in his team the great people even the other great leaders in his team and I saw a speech uh, by our coach Rossi Erasmus who said at one point I got a big head and I was too big for the team and I had to get dropped because I was bad for the team and I want you to know whoever you are you're not bigger than this team what a fabulous culture to be discipled by well, what about a, a work environment? You know, is imagine being in a space where you had your dream job and you got to work with your dream person. I don't know who you really look up to, but imagine for some of you, you got to work. I'm not just talking like in, in the vicinity of, but you got to work closely with Elon Musk for like two years. See how he does deals. See how he negotiates. See how he thinks about risk. Would you like to be discipled by him in the business sphere? Or imagine going to work in a Google, like in Silicon Valley in Google, and be shaped by that environment. You see, we so often think when other people want to shape us, that's negative, until you have these really great examples. 
And so many of us would go, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a sport. Or for me, I, a couple of years ago, I got to dive. I'm a spear fisherman. I got to dive with uh, one of kind of like uh, this amazing spear fisherman in Oz. And I learned so much for him. He discipled me in spear fishing. I learned about breathe up techniques. So that's how you prepare yourself to dive. So you can, you're more relaxed. You can hold your breath for longer. So you can go deeper and you can stay there for longer and you can shoot more fish. I wasn't complaining about his influence in my life. I wanted it. And you see the, the difference between discipleship being toxic discipleship, let me put it this way, is when people use fear and shame and anger to control and manipulate us to become what they want. But healthy discipleship is when people believe in us, generous towards us, care about us, and want to take their experience and their weight and their, their authority to shape us to be the best version of who we can be. You see, the difference between discipleship being toxic or discipleship being controlling and manipulative or discipleship being an amazing experience is your will, your choice to buy into that or not. If you feel manipulated and controlled, it's toxic. But if you go, man, I so wish I can learn everything I can from that person and be shaped by them. You see, that's what Jesus invited his disciples into. They were gonna get to live with him, travel with him. Have you ever traveled with someone? Like you get to know them in a whole different way. That's why the honeymoon's after the wedding. I'm just saying. Because there's a different experience. And they got to travel with him and see how he taught and what he did because they wanted to be shaped by this extraordinary man. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at the very first invitation that we have from the Gospels where Jesus invites some people to be his disciples and see what we can learn from it. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, that's he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. A few things here. Number one, Simon and Andrew are fishermen. And as a fellow fisherman, there's a few things about fishermen. Number one is they tend to be quite passionate about fishing. Ask their wives. Fishermen's widow is a real thing. Because it's like, yeah, I love you, baby, but we're going to bed early tonight. Why? Because I'm going to wake up at four, and then I'm disappearing. You know, it's like all the passion. How come when Judah wakes up at four, you don't get up? Because I'm not going fishing. You know, so, no, I do. I do get up sometimes. Um, but these guys probably found their identity in what they did. They weren't just, this wasn't just their trade. They were fishermen, okay? And so we've got to ask ourselves a question. What caused these guys to leave a sense of identity, their, their sense of their future, their livelihood, leave everything and walk away after a few simple invitation, immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus Christ? What was the nature of this invitation? See, ultimately, that's what Jesus Christ is calling us all to. 
He's calling us to leave our sense of identity, our sense of value, our sense of where we belong in this world. I am great things. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a preacher. I am whatever we do. And go, I am discipled to be the number one thing in my life. And you might not be there yet. You might be like, hey, I'm visiting here. I just came to watch that guy get baptized. So, whoa, take it easy, China. I'm like, fair enough. Fair enough. You see, Jesus always made room in his life for people who are in the process of making the decision of whether they wanted to buy into his life or not. That's why he ministered to 5,000 people. And those guys were like, they were there for the free lunch. There was no such thing as a free lunch except with Jesus. And he did miracles, so that was pretty cool. We wanted to see this, but we're not quite sure if we want to be a follower of Jesus just yet. And Jesus spent time ministering to them so they could suss him out and make a decision whether they were going to be his follower, his disciple or not. But then there were the 120 of people who said, yes, this is what I want. And then there were the 72. And then there were the 12. And I just want you to know, wherever you're sitting on this range, Jesus is inviting you to take a step closer into discipleship, which is my life is about Jesus. That's what he's inviting you to. You see, in a certain sense, to use a dating analogy, you know, you might just be flirting with Jesus. It's like, I like this guy, love, joy, peace, awesome. His non-violent stuff, it's pretty cool. Some of his views on sexuality and money, you know, not there yet. And so you're there, or maybe you're in an on-again, off-again relationship. You know, you know what that's like if you're dating. If you do, I'm sorry, because that's painful. But on again, off again, it's like when it's convenient, things are going well, or I need someone, I'm in a bad space in my life, there's that person for me, that's awesome. And people sometimes like that with Jesus. Sometimes I meet people here, and I haven't seen them for a while, I say, hey, it's so great to see you, and they're like, yeah, it is, I haven't been coming for quite a few months now. I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, man, and like, how are you doing? And they're like, not good. I'm like, that's why you're here. You need Jesus again. Jesus, fix it. And then Jesus fixes it and everything goes well. And then you're like, ah, thank you, Jesus. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen? Amen, thank you. And then there's the courting Jesus. And then there's, actually, let's just get married. Look, this is it. Till death does us part. If this costs me my life, so be it. This is what I'm about. And so you know, that's the decision that people make when they go through the waters of baptism. My life is about Jesus. And I want people to know that. So what was this invitation that made it it so appealing that people were willing to leave everything and follow Jesus? This invitation is made up of three parts. We're going to deal with two tonight and one I'm going to deal with in a couple weeks' time. The simple statement, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Three parts. Number one, follow me. Number two, and I will make you. And number three, fishers of men. As I said, that third part, fishes of men, we're gonna, I'm going to preach on in a couple weeks. Follow me, first part. This is the call that he gives them. And what you need to know is that Jesus uh, was born in a context. He wasn't a 21st century Durbanite. So when we read the Bible as a 21st century Durbanite, sometimes we miss out on the fact that Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi living in Israel. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Mm, beautiful. And um, so you know that the whole sort of education system was designed to help 
young boys become rabbis. That was the pinnacle of success in that society. And so what they did, and Ross explained this quite a, probably about a month ago, and I'm going to explain it again, recap. But uh, from the ages of 6 to 10, these young boys and girls, actually, they were, women were educated until the age of 10, they had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There's a whole bunch of numbers in there. And Deuteronomy. And some of you can't even memorize the names of the first five books in the Bible. They had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. The guys who managed to do that by the age of 10 went on to the second stage, where between the age of 10 and 14, they had to memorize the rest of the Old Testament, which is 54 books, one of which is Psalms with 150 chapters in. Just saying. And the guys who managed to do that by the age of 14 got to apply to a rabbi or a teacher of the law to be one of his followers. And this wasn't like UCT where you send off an application. You used to try and figure out, our, the whole goal of being a disciple is to be like your teacher. And so you had to figure out what they were like and who you could be like. So you look at the first rabbi and you're like, yo, that guy's a little bit like charismatic and flamboyant. I can't do that. I'm a bit more reserved. But that looks really boring, so I'm not sure. This guy here in the middle, this is me. I reckon I can do this. So you'd pick the guy you think you could actually be like, and you'd go hang out with him, generally speaking, for six months. It's a long hangout. And he'd be teaching and doing his thing and traveling, and you'd just be following, listening. And at some point, he'd sit down with you, and he'd start to ask you questions about the Bible. For them, they didn't have the New Testament, so the Old Testament scriptures uh, ask you questions. And they had this cunning way of asking you a question about a certain verse, but what they were actually wanting was for you to reference the verse before and after. So you had to memorize that. And he would ask you and throw all these things and try and fool you. And then if you made it all the way through and he saw you were brilliant and he thought you could actually emulate, be like him, he would say these words to you, follow me. 99% of people didn't get there. Most of them had to go home and become tradesmen like their family. But the 1% heard these words, follow me. And here's Jesus. He comes up to some fishermen and he says, follow me. And those young men, Simon and Andrew, knew exactly what that meant. This was the call of all calls. This is what every Jewish boy aspired to. And they hadn't made it. They were fishermen. So they dropped out the system and Jesus chose them. And he says here in John 15, 16 to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruits. And if you think that only applies to the disciples, look at Romans 8:29. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to be like his son. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Here's the thing, two things for your life. Number one, Jesus chose you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. Mark, you didn't choose Jesus, he chose you. Karen, you didn't choose Jesus, he chose you. Brad and Carmen, Brad got baptized tonight, you didn't choose Jesus, he chose you. And apparently you didn't even choose your wife, she chose you too. <laughs> it's true. Should hear this story. Ha! 
And number two, the reason he chose you, because he believed you could be like him. Because that's what it says here, to become like his son. Jesus believes you can be like him. And if that doesn't sound absolutely fantastic and amazing, you just don't know how cool Jesus is. He's the most radical man that ever lived. And so the question that he's bringing to Simon and Andrew is, will you follow me? Will you think like I think? Will you believe what I believe? Will you teach what I teach? Will you do what I do? Is the aspiration of your heart to be like me? And if you're thinking that is this call really to be like Jesus, I've got some verses for you. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. In everything you do, because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so he's our example. And so in everything we're saying, I want to be like Jesus, because Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. We must imitate God. Paul the Apostle saying this in 1 Corinthians 11, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Turn to the person next to you and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Tough if you're sitting next to your spouse. But you've got to understand, like we go like, well, that's Paul the Apostle. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But that's the invitation to every single believer. And if you're sitting here and you're a young believer and you look up to some older believers and you're going, man, I want to learn from them. I want to be like them. Let me tell you, God's heart for you is that you become that to someone else. That they look at your life. They see the way you date. You see the way uh, you study. You see the way you approach your work. You see what you do with your money. And you're going, I want to be like that person. I can learn from them. There's so much freedom there. There's so much joy there. They're fearless in the face of opposition. I want to be like that. I was talking opposition about the money and the economy, not the marriage. I'm just saying. Luke 6.40, these are the words of Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus wants you to be like him. That's the invitation for your life. The second part, oh, one more point, then I'll get to the second part of the call. You see, along this journey of becoming like Jesus, we'll find ourselves in these moments where we want to do something our way, but we know Jesus is asking us to do something His way, and we've got to choose to go with Him because that's the choice. That's why the will is so crucial. And let me tell you, it's so normal in this process of discipleship that when Jesus initially comes to speak to you about doing something his way, your initial feeling is, oh no, I don't wanna do that. That's gonna be really tough. And then we say yes to Jesus and then we find that there's life and there's grace and goodness there. In fact, almost every significant step I've taken in my walk and my fellowship of Jesus has been met at this threshold when I know Jesus is asking me to do something. In myself, I don't wanna do it. But eventually I say, okay, Jesus, yes, because I wanna be like you. And then the grace and the goodness and the joy flows. Let me give you some examples. When I made the decision to be a follower of Jesus, at that time, I was not frequenting uh, 
church that much and wanting to be a part of it. And my initial thought, I remember being like this in the service and the guy was preaching the gospel and he said, you wanna give your life to Jesus, put your hand up. And I, my initially, my thought was, I don't wanna do it because my life's gonna be boring. What am I gonna do on Friday night if I can't go get puzzled with my mates? Puzza Zulu, I think, for drinks. I just thought I had to explain that in case you were wondering what I said. Multilingual. And then eventually I got to that point where I said, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna give you my life. And you know what happened? I wasn't bored, I was enthralled because the new life of Jesus Christ was birthed inside of me and I found something so much more exciting than I had before. And then a little bit after that, literally probably about a month after that, being a follower of Jesus, I felt like I was seriously into a band. You know, like when you're into a band, but like you're into a band. I was seriously into a band called The Doors. I was a bit of an odd teenager, I'll admit. I was into The Doors and Jim Morrison. I had all the albums. I had books. I had the bootleg albums. I had his poetry books because he could articulate stuff that I felt inside that I didn't know how to. And I identified with Jim Morrison, which is a problem because he wasn't sober for the last seven years of his life and then died. You don't really want to emulate him too much. And I remember this feeling when I was dealing with this and, and going, God, I, I feel like you want me to give up the doors. It was a big deal because that was a part of my identity. I saw myself that way. And then I eventually I made that decision. And I sold all my albums and then I remember taking the money and I, I went to a Christian <laughs> place and I bought this CD called Del by Delirious back in the day and I remember taking it home putting it on and it was the beginning of these amazing worship sessions I had in my bedroom where the presence of God rocked up and he absolutely enraptured me and I was like that is so much better than the doors and then I went on this journey to um, go into ministry and God asked me to go into ministry and I didn't want to do it because my dad had been a pastor you know pastors kids they see stuff just saying. And then God, God and I had like a six month box about that one. And I remember I was on a five day fast. And I said, God, I just need you to tell me clearly. And I heard God say, I don't need to tell you again. I've already told you. And in that space, I eventually, okay, Jesus, yes. If this is what you want me to do with my life, fine. Like I was bummed, eh? Because I was scared I was going to live a small, quiet life. And I remember becoming a youth leader and going over some time and leading a youth and just seeing young people um, coming to faith, getting saved, getting full of the Holy Spirit, reaching out to their mates, seeing them saved and going, this is the best thing ever. This is what I wanna do with the rest of my life. Finances, one of those things, Ross is very right, in the early stages, it's a tipping point. And I remember, you know, in the beginning it was easy to tithe because I wasn't earning any money. So 10% of nothing is nothing. Like the basket came past and I took out my imaginary wallet and my imaginary money. I was like, ha, so generous. In faith, Lord. And then I earned a thousand rand a month, so a hundred bucks. Like it didn't matter that much. But then I got to this point where I realized I wasn't actually having faith in Jesus and I needed to trust him. And so I prayed one of those prayers. And you know like how this happens. It's in worship. The Spirit's flowing. You're emotional. You're like, okay, Jesus, anytime you want me to give money, you can come and ask me. And like two weeks later, he was like, and I was like, pardon? And he, and he 
put it on my heart to give away a thousand rand to someone, which was all the money I had in my bank account at that time. And I was like praying for two weeks. All of a sudden, my prayer life was intense. I'm like, are you sure, God? Is this you? How do I know it's you? Maybe this is the devil telling me to give money away. Because that's what the devil tells. He tells us to be generous with our money. Joking. And I was stuck in this space. And after two weeks of this turmoil, I took the decision, okay, I'm give it away. And I remember the shaking hand giving it away and just peace coming over me. And literally like the next week, the exhaust broke on my car and it would have taken 2,000 rand to fix it. And I was like, your problem. <laughs> and that Sunday, someone came up to me at church and said, God told me to give you this and it was a check for 2,000 rand. And I was like, I have a Father in heaven that knows me, that can provide for me, that can reach into my life, and he's a good accountant because a thousand rand would have bought half an exhaust and I needed 2,000 rand. <laughs> but let me tell you, every single time there's this tension, I think Jesus is calling me to say this. I remember literally in Israel, God speaking to me and saying, I want you to be single. I'm calling you to singleness. And I was like, I knew it. I want to be single for the rest of my life. I'm going to die a virgin. This is hectic. <laughs> and praise God, he is preparing me for a bride. Woo! Glory. But let me tell you, in the moment, there's this turmoil inside of you. Jesus has asked me to do something and it freaks me out. And the question in that moment is, will you follow him? Will you go, actually, Jesus, I'm going to handle this myself, and I hope you give me what I need, but actually, I'm going to make the decisions for my life. Will you allow Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of your life? And you see, we always want the peace and the breakthrough before we make the decision, not after. And God always brings a breakthrough after because if you're like, I'll start tithing when you give me more money, that's not faith, that's accounting. And he wants us to trust him and he calls us into this love relationship where you're like, Jesus Christ, I trust you with my life, with my singleness, with my marriage, with my finances, with my career. Which brings me to the second part of this call Jesus' words, and I will make you. What a relief. You don't have to make yourself a disciple of Jesus. You don't have to make yourself like Jesus. He'll do it for you, in you and through you. And I will make you. You see, here's why the will is so crucial. If we haven't bought in with our will and said yes to Jesus, he's trying to make us like him and we're continually resisting him and that's called misery. You know, they've done research and they find that the happiest group of people in the world, three groups, the happiest group of people in the world are Christians who are fully devoted to Jesus, followed by people who aren't followers of Jesus at all, followed by Christians who say I'm devoted by Jesus but keep wrestling with him to take back the reins of their life. It's a miserable place to live. Because you wanna do what God wants but you wanna do what you want and you haven't quite got to that place of saying Jesus, here's my life. You see the call of Jesus for you to follow him is for you to find fullness and grace and to allow him to make you into something. And the question is, is will you allow his, his love to mold you? 
and His mercy to save you, and His peace to settle you, and His joy to strengthen you, and His generosity to provide for you, and His kindness to smile on you, and His patience to encourage you, and His faithfulness to embolden you, and His goodness to satisfy you, and His gentleness to nurture you. Will you allow Him to do something with your life? Because Jesus Christ is coming to you saying, follow me, and I'll make you. I'll do something in you. Will you allow me to work in your life? Let's pray. I really wanna speak to Christians this evening who you're in that space of tension where you're flirting with Jesus or you on again, off again, and you kind of aren't in that space of fully giving your life, yielding yourself to Jesus. Or maybe there's an area of your life which you need to trust Him in. Maybe it's your singleness or your finances. But you really just feel the Holy Spirit pressing on you this evening and saying, give that thing to me. Give your life to me fully. If that's you this evening, can you just put up your hand? I'd love to just pray with you. Thank you so much. So many hands going up. And He loves you. His desire is to bring goodness and fullness into your life. Just pray this simple prayer in your own heart. Lord Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior. I choose to trust you and give you my life. Fully unreservedly take it and make me like you and father god i pray for specific areas of breakthrough for people wherever they struggling to trust you god i just pray that you step in set people free and they take those steps of breakthrough and father i thank you that you call us into a place of absolute radical intimacy and goodness with you and father i pray that we would Deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.